You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway and Doro Phones, for making this podcast possible. Mike Murphy here welcoming you to the first Senior Times series of podcasts. Over the course of the next months, it'll be my pleasure to interview and chat to some of Ireland's most prominent and interesting people. Among them, broadcasters Ryan Tuberty and Marty Morrissey, entrepreneur and businessman Dennis O'Brien, author Deirdre Purcell, producer and director of Riverdance John McCalgan, communications specialist Terry Prone and many more. We'll also be hearing from experts on pensions, health, financial planning and mindfulness. Thanks to our sponsors, Zurich. Expressway, Doro and the Sports Surgery Clinic. Hello and welcome. I interviewed our guest today, Dennis O'Brien, in early March, before the onset of the dreaded virus. So his early travel references that you'll hear were made pre the current global lockdown. I do hope you enjoy our exchanges. Dennis O'Brien. Dennis, you're very good to give us the time to uh, come and have this little chat. I really do appreciate it. It's great to be with you again, Mike. We're recording this on a Friday. Mm. Tell me about the week you've just had and what are your plans for travel in the next few days? On Sunday last I went to Mexico, or sorry, on Sunday I went to Paris overnight there and then I, the next day I went to Mexico City. Took about 13 hours because of the wind against us and then I was in Mexico City for the night went to meetings, went to a lunch, and then I flew back to Dublin, arriving on Wednesday morning at half seven because my son was playing in a rugby match and I needed to be back in Dublin. No kidding. I d- did you actually come back for the rugby match? I did, yeah. yeah. From Mexico? From Mexico City. So I just went there for a night and came back. I mean, this is unbelievable. Where do you go next? Yeah, go on. I'm going today, I'm going, or tomorrow I'm going off to Vancouver, Samoa, uh, Fiji. So I get to P- Fiji with a time change, probably Tuesday at this rate. And then I'm going to Papua New Guinea, Hong Kong, and then I'm going back to Dublin. So, How, how do you manage it? I mean, how do you manage I, it health-wise? Uh, health-wise is kind of a bit difficult, but, you know, I have a, very, I have a business that is, uh, for 15 years, went brilliantly. And the last three or four years has been very difficult because of the changing nature of the telecommunications market. People don't make voice calls. Now they're into data and it's become much more complicated, much more complicated proposition. So, you know, I'm much more on top of, I'm I'm managing my business much more intensively than I ever have before. Mm -hmm. I used to work pretty hard. But now I, you know, I go to the markets more and more. I'm listening to management you know, in a room and telling, you know, asking about their business, what are the trends, what are their competitors doing, and how can we be better and how we can grow our revenue. So it's it, we have a business that's in 31 countries, so it's very complicated. It goes from Fiji all the way to the Central America and through the Caribbean. Mm. So, look, it's just a time, a particular time, when you have to double down on effort and work harder. It's I mean, just not a great time. I mean, I'm 61 now, so it's probably yeah. not a great time to be doubling down at work. This is Digicel. Yeah. Is Digicel really taking up all your time now? It takes all my time. My other businesses are separately chaired. My wife chairs our golf and resorts and hotels business. And then I have other businesses chaired by other people. So I might appear 
once a month at those businesses, but, you know, 99% of my time is tied up on DigiSilk. Are your staff good? Do you trust them? Yeah, we, we, it's, it, I do trust my staff and they're very good. But we, you know, as a market has changed, you need new managers and new thinking. And business used to change at 50 miles an hour. Now it's changing at 500 mm. miles an hour. You know, the whole change in digital, the digital world is just incredible in entertainment, communications. Mm. I mean, you'd see that, you know, from your own work going back to cable television and television, Mike. But it's just changing rapidly and everything yeah. is more dynamic. And yeah. you've got to get out ahead of that. Let me ask you this. With, with all of this traveling, with the pressure that there is with Digicel, and I do know that there is pressure on you with Digicel sure. because... You're the majority owner. You yep. nearly went public a couple of years ago. You pulled the public, uh, public movement at the last minute, more or less. Mm. And now you have bondholders who are after you to say, I want my money back or I want et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you sleep at night? Well, look, you know, you've got to put everything in context here. Um, I've seen very difficult times in business, you know, uh, I was very lucky that in the downturn in Ireland, I had a great recession, a good recession, because I was comfortable at that time. So, you know, Digicel will come through this. It'll come through a stronger company and we will, you know, ultimately strengthen the balance sheet of the business. And, and you know, that's going to happen on a timely basis. So I, I think, you know, this, you know, you've got to put everything in context and say, look, we've been, I've been here before. The numbers are bigger. But, you know, in the, yeah. in the late 80s, it was a tough time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And look, you know, I, I can remember those times and it's in my makeup as such to, to fight my way through it. Do you have the four o'clock in the morning, all the ghosts oh, yeah. standing around the bed? Do Absolutely. you? Absolutely. The worst time to think about any and solve any business problem is when you're horizontal. The worst. And it's the worst time. You know what I mean? People say you lie down on the couch and you have your best thoughts. Absolutely not. Stand up. Really? And maybe go for a walk or a run or something, and and you then you can handle, you can handle any of your problems in my mind. But uh, times that you've been through, as we've seen you in and out of the tribunals and so yep. on, um, and it was almost day after day you were doing that. Were they four o'clock in the morning jobs where you were waking up and saying, "Oh God, I wonder what I'm going to be asked. What way am I going to handle this?" No, I, I no, because you know, I, I didn't really have any problem with the what they were asking me about. I didn't have any problem with the documentation, and I always slept like a baby. Uh, it, it, you know, it was just very consuming intellectually that you had to brief yourself and spend days and days and days, you know, reading every document, thousands of documents that they would give you before they brought you in to cross-examine you. Could you absorb them? Yeah, no, I have a good, I have a, I have a kind of a system of absorbing and I would just lock myself in a room and I would read everything from head to toe and keep notes. And then I might get up at six in the morning and then read all my notes before I'd go into the tribunal. I'm really interested in finding out about your background, where you came from, what made you what you are now. Can I just dwell for a moment on that, on the tribunal? And yeah. On, and that, were you very upset at the findings? Now, the findings were not legal findings because there were no real consequences. But from a publicity point of view, were you, were you upset by the findings that they actually made? Well, obviously, my detractors, detractors had a field day, like it yeah. was like five-star field day. But I think when I look back, 
I, I, there was a couple of you know data points. One is 17 civil servants gave evidence to say that the license was awarded fairly to us because we had the best application. Then the international consultant, Professor Anderson, who did 100 of these competitions around the world, he wasn't called to give evidence. And we had to go into the High Court and force the tribunal to bring him in to give evidence, which we won and eventually did. And then they didn't ask him half the questions they should have. They guillotined him mm. as such. So I knew from the get-go there was something wrong here. And the problem with tribunals is if you're a barrister and there was three barristers on 3,000 a day, like this is fantastic money. If you open your computer up on a Sunday, you're going to get three grand a day. So, you know, they broke the record for a number of days worked in a year. So, uh, and then they didn't, they, they were, they, they said, well, we're not going to bring those people in because they're favourable to Dennis O'Brien. And, you know, and then ultimately, I suppose the thing that really shuddered me was that when my wife and myself were having our second child, she was in London and about to give birth. And she called me on a Thursday night to say, my consultant said that you better get over here because this is a complicated birth. Okay, and I nearly, I nearly had a fit. So we rang the tribunal at four in the afternoon and say, Dennis can't appear tomorrow because his wife is giving birth in London and there are complications. And the tribunal said, fine, fine, fine. But you know what they did? They opened the tribunal, got all the barristers in the next morning and they said, where is Dennis O'Brien? Oh, and they knew that I, like I had told them and then we even wrote them a letter, William Fry wrote them a letter that I couldn't go. And they didn't believe that my wife had a complicated birth of our daughter, Alva. And they made the UK, the London-based obstetrician, write a full report on the birth of my daughter, okay, who's 18 ah. now. And they read it in public in front of maybe 200 people into the tribunal and into the record and into the, the transcript. When that happened, I said... Oh my God, this is totally biased and unfair, and in a breach of confidentiality. Like the my, my solicitor and even my senior counsel said to me, Dennis, I have never seen this before. They yeah. must really, really have it in for you. And after that, I just said, it's arm to arm and it's hand to hand with the tribunal because I just knew that there was Stockholm syndrome there where the senior counsels were in the thrall of trying to get a result. Ultimately, they wrote a draft report and then changed the draft report nearly 270 degrees in a completely different direction to the final report. Yeah. To me, it was, <laughs> yeah. you know, a pretty shocking situation. And now we have another tribunal, which is called the SiteServe uh, Tribunal, in regard to when we purchased SiteServe, where you had a politician, Catherine Murphy in the Doyle, even though there was an injunction in court saying that she couldn't, you know, open my bank accounts, which she did, and now she won't come and give evidence to the SiteServe Commission. So the government has spent 30 million. There are at least, you know, 20 barristers, solicitors down there for all the people who are in the in this commission to give evidence, and it's costing 30, 40 million. Mm. So I, my, my, I have a very low view or poor view of tribunals. 
Am I glad or am I sorry that I opened up this? I know, it's a Pandora's <laughs> box that's deep. It's like a container. No, but as a matter of fact, if you don't mind, can I yeah. follow on a yeah, little yeah, bit? Yeah, on sure, it? yeah. Um, one thing I do want to say, by the way, mm. at the time I had, I had been chairing a cable company and I was dealing with the Department of Communications on a regular basis and I had met most of the civil servants that you would have been dealing with in it. And I, I, I knew through the tri- tribunal, there is no way on earth. Uh, now, I'm not, I don't mm. know what happened with you guys. Mm. There is no way on earth a minister is going to walk into those guys and say, hey, listen, I, I have the very guy for you. I hope you're going to give it to so-and-so. Mm-hmm. There is, the, one, they would have told him where to go. Mm. But two, they would have come out since then and said, by the way, I never said it at the time, but uh, uh, so-and-so did come to me and ask, would I? Yeah. So I, I know that whatever about the other aspects you're talking yeah. about, I not, know nothing about. Mm. I knew that system well enough to know that couldn't have been the case. Can I move on? Yes. Right. You mentioned there the, the rough time you got. With, and I, did, I, I didn't intend to go this route in my Too chat right, with you at right. all, Dennis. But yeah. since you brought it up, or since I brought it up, <laughs> and since we're talking about yeah. it... Independent newspapers, Tony O'Reilly and co. were very hard on you. I remember at that time. And I, I wonder, and I want to ask you the question, subsequently you invested in independent newspapers. Did you invest in independent newspapers to get back at Tony O'Reilly and independent newspapers for the things they had written about you in their newspaper? No. Oh. I, I, I bought shares... Uh, Tony used to love dividends, so you know the INM was a very uh, big dividend payer every year to their shareholders. So I was in the telecoms business, radio, and other business. But I said, I'm going to diversify now, make an investment in a media business, and because it's dividend paying. So I bought shares, bought two or three percent, then about ten percent, and he he kind of misconstrued that that this was an attack on him. Then journalists started saying, oh, this is because the newspapers attacked Dennis. It wasn't. It was a diversification. It was the worst investment I ever made. <laughs> I, but in the am, grand, I right, am I right you lost about 300 million? A bit more, maybe. A bit more. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, uh, but, you know, if you're, if you're investing money, you know, you're lucky to have, if you get a 60% strike rate, a win rate, like, you know, that is really good. But, you know, in, in terms of if you have a portfolio of investments, yeah, look, it was painful. And, you know, if I ever said to my wife, let's cut down a bit of expenditure, she'd just say I&M. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's just the way it is. You know, and, like, I, I sold my but you, shares. You didn't go. you didn't go after O'Reilly, did you? Not personally, no. And actually... You know, I, I would have to say that Tony O'Reilly did a lot of good in Ireland. Yeah. He did a lot of good in forging better relations between the United States and Ireland. I think the Ireland funds is probably his most important piece of work that he's done. And uh, I would say that, you know, I am saddened that he has run into difficult times because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a person that is in any way vindictive. I, you know, I don't like people going from a high down to a low, okay? And uh, I would hope that everything is behind him at this stage. Um, you, 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 you're not vindictive. Um, all right, can I, can I uh, just posit something to you? Hmm. Um, I know how generous and philanthropic you are. O'Reilly did the Ireland Fund. You've done so many things elsewhere, which I would like to talk to you hmm. about in a few moments. But... I, if I say to you 
that the image you have in Ireland, despite the philanthropic work you've done, despite your work with Special Olympics, etc., 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 is, I believe, that the image that a lot of people have of you is of Dennis O'Brien walking in and out of tribunals yeah. and walking in and out of court cases. And if I said to you, a lot of people would consider that you are somewhat litigious. Yeah. How would you react to that? Well, obviously, if you're, if you're asked, invited to give evidence and forced to give evidence, um, and in fact... I probably could have got away of not giving evidence in the trial because I wasn't yeah. living in Ireland, okay? Um, but, you know, obviously I had to go in and out of the tribunal. Yeah. And, you know, I gave a number of, uh, may, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 days of evidence. I right. don't know, over a period of 10 years, okay? So that would be one memory of, of people, me going in and out there. But that's unavoidable, okay? Okay. Along but, with maybe 150 other people. Yeah, but on the other hand, though, you, you do seem to be litigious. You do, I mean, why, why do... Who, who gives a monkeys if a reporter writes something nasty about you in the paper? Well... Who cares? Yeah, why why do you care? I agree with you, but I'd have to say there's maybe two instances where I took... Uh, three instances where I took libel actions, okay, in the last... 25 years, yeah. okay? And if you look at, you know, the coverage of my affairs and my business affairs or my private life, like it's wall to wall, okay, at times, okay, particularly when I'm in the news. But, you know, I, I took my first libel case like in, in the 90s uh, because they said that I bribed Ray Burke for a radio licence which ultimately was totally untrue. And I had to I had to protect my name because I was trying to get licenses elsewhere around the world. And if anybody yeah, you couldn't was to look, it was just devastating, CV, yeah. okay? And the second thing was where, you know, I was criticized by the Daily Mail for my work in Haiti, okay? And they said that I was acting the saint in Haiti to deflect the Moriarty Tribunal. Which is, it was a poisonous, villainous piece, okay? And I wrote to the Daily Mail and said, correct that, okay? Yeah. And they said, piss off, okay? And I said, well, would you like to reconsider well, that? Okay, it was the fact that they told you to piss off was what bugged you yeah, rather well, than, I suppose, Well, it's interesting, the Mike, there was a minister a number of years ago who uh, was, was libelled on News Talk, Okay. Now, this minister is retired, okay? I heard about it when I was in London. Within 15 minutes, I'd rung the minister and apologised and said, you have been liabled by News Talk this morning and I want you to be the first person to know that I'd like to apologise for that, okay? Now, ultimately, she sued us, okay, and we had to pay a yeah. whole pile of money out. But we, I handled it in a way that was proper. If you say something that is completely uh, libelous about something, about somebody, you either take it or you don't take it. And if you're the owner of the media outlet, you should say, I'm sorry, my journalist got it wrong. But instead, the journalists and the media outlet normally fight and say, no, we're right, this is free speech. Yeah. But you're damning somebody and damaging their reputation. And it's, it's wrong and it's unkind uh, by any standards. And, like, if you take the Sunday Business Post, they were blaming me, OK, for the, the bust of the Irish economy and the busting of the banking, Irish banking system. And I knew in my own mind that any money that I borrowed off Irish banks... I paid back, I paid back 900 million to Anglo-Irish Bank. So I was not one of those people, but I was put in a headline. Now, if I was in Harare, 
I'd say, yeah, this is this will happen. You know, it could happen. You know what yeah. I mean? But we're supposed to have a really good system here of checks and balances yeah. and that. So, I, you know, it was a bruising experience, yeah. okay? Would you like to win a top-of-the-range iPhone totally designed for an older person? Adoro are leaders in offering phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls, can alert someone if you do, and gives your loved ones peace of mind. No worries, we've got it covered. Doro are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life. Everyone should have the opportunity to live a fulfilling life without compromises. And Doro help make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. After all, age is just a number. To win this iPhone, visit www.seniortimes.ie. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. Doro Phones. Gives loved ones peace of mind. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like being poised to click at 8.59 and bagging tickets to the gig that sold out in 30 seconds. Got them. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Insurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Okay, go back though to what I said. Yeah. Go back to what, what the point that I was making, which is your image here in Ireland, in my view, yeah. is not consistent with the positive things you do. It is more allied to negativity yeah as in court cases etc you know, etc does that no I'm does not, it concern you no I'm no i look i and my friends i meet loads of people i interact with people in ireland i employ like maybe seven eight thousand people here i have good relationships everywhere and friendships old friendships particularly mm-hmm. and even people who hit adversity i stick with them and they're my friends but I can't change, you know, media's view of me. Mm. And I'm wasting my time, you know what I mean? There, there, there's journalists who write about the tri- Moriarty Tribunal every two weeks, trot out the same old rubbish. Mm. And, you know, they bought the, the whole, they bought the, the, the J, J-Lo and they're just drinking it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. We've talked enough about this, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Um, are you ever going to retire? Probably you know, not. What did you say, you're 61? Yeah, probably not. I don't think you ever will. You, you no. wouldn't be able to, My you? father worked until he was 82. I have to talk to you okay. about your father. He was an interesting <laughs> man. But, by the, but let me ask you this then. You mentioned your wife, Catherine, whom I, you met through business. You, yeah. you were working, she was working with you. She ran a radio station for yeah. us in, in Prague. We went and set up a business there. And yeah. then she set up a radio station for us in Sweden. Okay. Yeah. And you're married. And uh, she's obviously... Um, a formidable kind of a person, is she? Well, she's formidable in many ways as a mother. Yeah, you four know, children, right? Four children. So at ages what to what? Um, from uh, from 11 to 20 today. Okay. Uh, and formidable in her own right um, from a business point of view. Do you ever discuss business deals with her? I do, yeah. Last night at half nine we were talking about something. And uh, we were talking about Quintilago yeah. and some uh, some deals that we're doing there at the moment. So, you know. And would she say, you must be joking that you're thinking of doing this? Oh, no, she would, yeah. But uh, she would leave the investment decisions to me in terms of whether I'd buy, buy a business or not because, yeah. she, 
you know, I would have a lot of information. You sure. wouldn't have as much information, but anything to do with, you know, or hotels, the resort, yeah. the golf resorts, it's all her. She know. must have such confidence in you having lost 300 million in the independent <laughs> she's, newspaper. Well, she just slagged me with that. <laughs> but she's modernised those businesses, oh. I think, to her credit. Has she, yeah? You know, if you look at Quintalago, the average age of our clientele was probably 50 to 55. And she's brought the age group now down below 40, 35 to 40, because we built, she built this very big campus which is a sports centre, you know, professional gym for teams, plus the most modern pitch at the back of it. Yeah. Triathlon training, paddle tennis. Ten- Fantastic. It's a very, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's an intensive professional sports yeah. centre as such. OK, let's go to where I was originally going to chat to you, by yeah. the way. How did you become what you became? You mentioned your father there before, and I've had the pleasure of meeting your mother, who is a very, very formidable and delightful woman. Mm. Um, and what, what, what was your upbringing, Dennis? Your father was Dano. Yeah. He was known as Dano, wasn't yeah. he? I remember him from, he was water polo, wasn't he? Diving and water Diving polo. Diving and, yeah. yeah. He was and a good athlete. He was a very good athlete. Um, he, you know, he won a Taltine Games in high board diving. Uh, and he won the, he was Irish springboard champion and high board champion for years and years in Black Rock Baths. So, you know, I remember as a kid being brought out to Black Rock Baths. They had a key himself and uh, another great diver called Eddie Hearn, who was my godfather, who worked for Carl Martin's bookmakers, and they had a key. Now, you think of it today, you couldn't get a key to go into a pool in a million years, but they had their own key, slide the door and go in, and they used to go at half six in the morning of the summer diving. And my father tried to do an inward, he was at, he was back to the water and tried to do an inward three, two and a half somersault one morning, and he mistimed it and split his head and ended up in the water, knocked out completely. And his friend, Eddie Hearn, had to put, get, grab him out of the water, put him over his shoulders, get up all over the railway line, that bridge, oh, yeah. and bring him down to Michael's Hospital to, to the A&E. Unconscious. Un, like he was out cold, OK? And, and he my, was a big man, as yeah, I recall, My by mother the way. could not believe it because Eddie at 10 o'clock arrived to the house and said, Dano was out in, in, the, in the A&E, split with his head out, out cold. <laughs> so then my father, a number of years later, was out at the back of the waterfall and he did another dive on Stephen's Day. Where? In uh, the back of the waterfall in Enniskerry. The Powers Court. Powers Court, way back up the mountain. And it, there was a cliff and he would dive down and he slipped... And on the way in, he hit his hip off a rock and he broke his hip. So he was with uh, some great friends, his Ronnie Kavner and people like him, and they carried him off the mountain, okay? And my mother refused to go and see him for a week in the Blackrock <laughs> Clinic because she? she said, I've had enough of this. <laughs> Did she? Yeah. And he was a bit... And I, I, I used to bring him in a bottle of red every night because he was fond of a nice glass of wine yeah. just to kill the pain, you know what I mean? Yeah. And eventually we persuaded my mother to come go out and see my father and forgive him for another <laughs> slip. <laughs> And listen, what about you and he? Did you had you a great relationship? Are you were you the eldest? No, 
I was the third. And my what? two sisters would be older. Abigail, I know. Uh, Abigail now is president of the RHA. She's president. Yeah, she's, she's a brilliant artist. photographer. Right? Yeah. yeah. And then my sister also does photography, and uh, and she is this in is London, Joanne. Joanne. Yeah. Who, yeah. And she works in London, and she is, she's more uh, more of a socialist than the rest of us, and she's yeah. a Labour canvasser. She canvassed for Corman in the last election, uh, you know, ten weeks or eight weeks ago, as such. And then my brother is in the investment area, and he's living in Dublin. But the key, you know, the thing in my upbringing was my father used to bring me to school. And I had 20 school minutes where? up in high school in Rathgar. Why did you go to high school? Because my mother was Protestant, my father was Catholic, and there was kind of a, a, a some some understanding between the two of them that the girls would go to a Catholic school, I'd go to a Protestant oh, school. Oh, really? Even though I was raised as a Catholic. But it was actually brilliant because, you know, it was interdenominational and also quite a lot of foreign students as well. So from a very early stage, I was meeting people from all over the yeah. world, which is brilliant. And you'd go with your dad? And I'd go with my father up in the car and I'd ask him, like, forensically what his day, what he was going to do. I'm sure it would the hell out of him. But I used to tell him, ask him what he was going to do that day. And he had his own, he worked for a large company, then he set up his own company. In what business? In, first, in, in, in pharmaceuticals originally and then in horse care products. And then in the evening time when he would come home, I'd then cross-examine what happened. So he'd tell me about, you know, missing sales, representatives missing sales numbers or production problems or trying to get supplies during the recession of cans into the country. There was all these problems, you know what I mean? People ripping them off, people not paying them, overseas people in particular. And it kind of was like, a, you know, it was like a third-level education yeah. in the car and for six or seven years. Socially, where were you at this stage? Like, how, were I you wealthy, up, and, no, upper-middle we class? We were comfortable middle class. Middle class, OK. But you yeah. knew when there was a squeeze. Mm. You know, we, you knew when things were bad in mm. business because it was at the kitchen table. And it's a lot, of like, a lot of Irish businesses in a way, you know, which is the, still the same. That, mm. you know, if, you know, if your mother and father are in business and they're the breadwinner, you yeah. know, and things are bad, sales yeah, are bad yeah. or people yeah. are not paying you or somebody yeah. messes you around, you know, it's at the kitchen table is, that you understand it. it, you have the feel for that. And so you, you at, at that time, were expressing a real interest in business, business and the yeah. way it worked. Yeah, in a subliminal way. I mean, I always knew I wanted to set up my own business. Did you? My really? father said, look, if you want to be independent, set up your own business. Right. Because, you know, he'd worked for, I'd say, more than half his career for somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and then he set up his own business in 1974. And he developed that business. He, like, he got to Trinidad ahead of me. To Trinidad? Yeah, because, you know, I don't know how many horses are in Trinidad, but he was down there and he had an agent in Trinidad. And subsequently, in 2007, I invested in Trinidad and set up a mobile Amazing. phone network. And he so, must have had a fairly successful business then, did he? Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah because, but because he was, you know, he's very innovative, very science-orientated, you know, in terms of uh, nutrition. You know, very advanced... For, you know, you know, he he would be going to the universities in America and seeing what the research was, you know, the new Bolton very Center, clever, for example, yeah. outside Philadelphia, and you know, he would be very conscious of where nutrition was going. Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, at the dinner table, uh, you mentioned being at, at, at the table. Mm. 
Your mother and your father, do I suspect they were very different types of personalities? I mean, what you'd said about your mother not going yeah. to visit them in hospital for a week, but yeah. were they very different types of personalities? They were, but they had the same values. You know what I mean? They had the same values when it came to people and you, you know, humanity, you know, in, in, in many ways. My father was in business. My mother was more interested in current affairs, what's happening in the world, you know what I mean, and politics. And so they were very they were different in that respect, which probably made it up for a good marriage mm. and an interesting discussion as well. And my mother would have known a lot about what is in the business because my father would bring her to meet with new agents and she would see what sort of person they were. Mm. You know, because a lot of it is on feel. And it human, is, isn't You know, it? human empathy. Are you still like that? Do you, do you often judge people not so much by what their curriculum says, but more on what you're meeting, yeah, seeing firsthand? Yeah, I never really read, uh, you know, education, CV, third level, that everybody's so hang up. I want to know what the person can do and what their experiences are and the depth of their experiences yeah. and, you know, how wide they were. Now, my wife will, will you know, probably three out of five times give me, give me her view and it could be a completely different view on somebody and in 50% of the case, probably she was right. You <laughs> yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So, look... It's uh, there is that kind of uh, you know in, in a marriage you 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 have that you know it's telepathic yeah. nearly. Does she ever tell you you're spending too much time away from home? Uh, my wife and my mother, or both, uh, both, both. <laughs> well, your wife particularly, both. both, do they? My mother's worried about terrorism at the moment. I mean, she's normally on the money, you know. She's yeah. You got really, you know, particularly when the you know obviously they took out the Iranian general, the Americans. Yeah, a few, you know, a few weeks ago, she said, "Look, that's going to lead to more terrorism. You're going to London. You're going to New York. Yeah. You know, you're going to Paris. Gee, I mean, what are you doing? You know what I mean? Well, I said, I'm not taking the underground. Yeah. You know, I stay overground. Yeah. You know, so you do have a little. You know, you think about yeah. those things when they're pointed out to you. But from family point of view, with your wife, does she say, Dennis, you're not spending enough time with the kids? Or anything Sometimes like that? she does. Yeah, but we, you know, I well. I do spend uh, all the time I should spend with yeah. my kids. You know what I mean? So You're very diligent about it, as you mentioned earlier, but you'd come back for somebody's football match and things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. You, so you enjoy that. that. You wouldn't miss it. Wouldn't miss it for any. You know would you not? No, 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 no. Listen, you know, you've got to have a perspective on life. That's number one. Number one. Yeah, and I spend a lot of time with my kids away. You know, we go on holiday together, and I'm, I'm here probably, you know, probably 100 days a year in Ireland. But that's it. I don't go to my office, you know, yeah. on, on the phone, maybe, you know, on email. And the, the 100 days is not to do with tax reasons, is it? That's no, well, it'd be way below even what I... Yeah, OK. I, I, I wasn't, you know, you know, wasn't going to... My business is scattered probably in 40 countries, you know, 45 countries, you know. Yeah. You know, there, you, you know, you just have to mind everything. Absolutely, yeah. You're very fortunate in having your own transport aboard planes and all this. That, that helps. There's no point in even That's talking a luxury. about it. Yeah. It is, absolutely. Um, can I go back to your childhood? Yeah. Jobs, what did you do? You, you, you got, I mean, there was no question of you being pampered or not. Don't worry, Dennis, stay at home, I'll earn the money and we'll educate you and so on. No, but that was you, the environment. What, did your dad and mum say, listen, you've got to get out and you've got to learn no, to work there? No, it came naturally because, you know, my mother always made us do the garden and clean the windows, you know, do the brasses, 
do all those things, you know, maintain it. We didn't have any home help as such, you know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, we always had, everybody had a list of things to do. And if you didn't cut the grass and pick up every bit of grass and every leaf and it wasn't spot on and spotless, you'd be sent out again to do it a second time. So you kind of learned high quality, you do your task properly as such. So then I worked for my father in his factory, you know, filling off his products like with a tap, filling cans and everything. Uh, and then I painted the factory. Then I worked for him at the Dublin Horse Show where he had a stand. Uh, you know, I did just about everything. You were a bellboy in a hotel, right? I was in the central. I worked for a guy called Andy McLean, who I think is still alive. Brilliant guy. He was a friend of my father's who was the manager of central. And my father said, will you give him a job? And I got a job for seven or eight quid a week. It was actually brilliant, carrying Americans' bags and getting a few quid. And I used to go up and down the tour bus to get a few more bob off them. <laughs> so, because in America, they all tip like crazy. Yeah. So then uh, then I went into England and I worked. Oh, before you did, yeah. did you not work as a waiter in Dublin? Oh, I did that. I did that, me I did that for five years. Did you? For, in as college. a waiter for five years? Yeah, in school. And, and Dobbins was a great place to go. I used to go there regularly. Bridge, yeah. It was a great place to go. What Everybody, was that like as well, a waiter? No, like at that time, Nobody knew who the hell you were. You were just yeah. a young fella. He's a waiter. Yeah. I, it was interesting because you learned human nature, particularly as people got, you know, a bit jarred, how their personalities <laughs> change. And, you know, if some, I always think that if somebody treats a waiter badly or rudely or dismissive, you know, I would think less of them nowadays, uh-huh. you know what yeah. I mean? And I go to dinner with friends of mine, they're kind of flicking their fingers. I said, Jesus, no, you, you don't. Know, yeah. That's not the I way to totally treat somebody, you, you know. Way, yeah. And it's how do you carry your oats, which is a very old saying in a way. Yeah. So, so I learned that and I got good tips. And it was, uh, was you know, a third level education in human nature. It yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Then I worked for Paddy, McGann, Paddy Madigan in the horse show house. Boy, Jesus, he was an intense guy. Like, he yeah. used to run us ragged on the floor. You know, he'd had to go as soon as somebody hit their drink, you know, an inch off the bottom of the glass, you were in. You were over. Another one, you know. And then I worked in England. I had a, I worked for a Pakistani gentleman, and I was stone cleaning with a friend of mine called Nimble. And uh, we, were, we were just used to make up the acid and put, paint it onto the walls and then spray it. This is at the Hammersmith flyover. And anyway, didn't the acid go down my friend's thing, uh, armpit? He had gloves and everything on. And I put the hose down it and it spread and burnt him from head to toe. So uh, you have all these kind of oh, memories yeah, of making a yeah. few quid, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then we were painting restaurants at night and then a fellow wouldn't pay us, so we painted the restaurant black the next night. You know, all, you know, trying to get paid <laughs> is the key thing if you're selling your labours. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that you were... Tony Ryan, there was a legend, Mm -hmm. uh, Tony with GPA, creator Mm -hmm. GPA, which was the first of the great trans world aeroplane leasing operations, wasn't it? And I knew Tony and I was very fond of him and Mm -hmm. Tony was very kind to me at a very difficult time in my life. And I remember... And to a lot of people, Mike. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. Very nice guy. I really liked him. But of course, he was one tough cookie. And uh, one one of the things, Dennis, I do remember... Down in his house in Tipperary, he invited us down, his and Annie, down to the house. And he showed me his wardrobe. And in the wardrobe, he had an entire room in the wardrobe filled with brand new, the same shirt in 365 little 
Uh, White colours. That's right. And he, I, this is what he wore. This was his uniform, really. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone a new one. Yeah. Everyone yeah. Knew. I was fascinated. But I also remember he told me about you were working for him and, of course, Michael, Michael O'Leary yeah, followed Michael, yeah. you, I yeah. think, didn't yeah, he? Did, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two pretty good high... And I felt like Bonnie Kenny in the middle. Really? Yeah. But you must have... I mean, you must have got a fantastic training from... How long were you with him, by the I way? I was with him nearly two years, but I was a shell shock. The day I arrived, <laughs> I couldn't believe... I thought he was born the piss because he had lists of things to do and he gave me the list and said, get off and do that, you know what I mean? Now, where was where was this? Uh, this is down in Dollar. He had a, he had a beautiful... This is in Tipperary? Yeah, Kilboy House. Yeah, I remember that's a... Yeah. So I left a very sort of quiet life working for a bank in Dublin and I joined him as his PA and I lived in his house. Yeah. So the second night I was there, uh, I was having dinner with Tony, OK? And Tony could be a bad mood or good mood, so there wasn't much talk this night. But next thing, the door burst open, and he took the hinges off, and it was the, the dairy manager, and uh, the farm manager, and Paddy was his name. And he started shouting something like, she's calving, she's calving, she's calving. <laughs> so in my Dublin 4, you know, language, I said, what the fuck is that? You know, and um, next thing, Tony is running, with, and he had the napkin still hanging out of his lovely shirt, and he was running down to the yard, okay, and they were pulling a calf, okay, and he, this guy couldn't pull him on her own, so... I had my only suit on. <laughs> the good suit. Tony had like a hundred suits. <laughs> and I said, my FX Kelly suit is going to get destroyed here. So I'm going to get in behind Tony. So if there's anything coming out the wrong way, he's going to get the splash. So we pulled the calf. Now, I'd never seen this before in my life, okay? And it was just the hilarious, you know, he's just hilarious. That Tony was talking high finance planes in one minute. The next thing he's out pulling the calf. Yeah, Absolutely. And then didn't he also, I mean, you were living with him in the, in the place. You were yeah. his PA, yeah, right? PA, and you are yeah. a PA. Yeah. But, of course, he was doing business at all hours of the, of the <sighs> morning. In, in, he was getting on to Tokyo, yeah. phoning Tokyo at 3 a.m. Yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Did he expect my, my special PA, the calf puller, uh, to be here as well? Did he? Well, you see, he also he, then go, used to go off travelling, you know what I mean? And he didn't have a plane, so he'd go commercial. Then he'd arrive back on a Saturday morning into Shannon at six in the morning, go straight to work. And he would go to his office. I'd be there on a Saturday, and we'd work till seven or eight at night. And he'd have all his meetings for all his private businesses on a Saturday. And I used to head up to Dublin maybe eight and land into Hartigan's at 10 o'clock and have about five <laughs> a few pints. pints. <laughs> so thank God I'm out of that. <laughs> yeah, a bit of break. Yeah. Because he just worked so hard. And if he asked you to do something, He'd tell you the words to use. He'd amazing psychology, buyer, seller. And most of the time he was selling. And he would say to you, use the following words and this tone of voice, okay? What, did he, what do you mean? Well, he would send you off to buy something. He might send you off to buy a property for him, okay? And he'd know the buyer would want to sell, but he'd use the psychology, you know, and words, you know what I mean? The market's bad, this is good, you know, well, there's something wrong with the roof or whatever. And you'd have to say verbatim that to the vendor, okay? Then he'd ring you that night and say, how'd the meeting go? And I'd say, very good, you know, really well. What did you say? And he'd have to tell him digitally back <laughs> what he told you to say, otherwise you'd get killed. And, like, you know, he did that. He translated that into the aircraft industry. 
and they became the most successful and the biggest aircraft leasing company in the world. And it was just sheer energy and push and drive and hiring great people. Like Morris Foley was his president, Jim King, yeah. Colin Barrington, like, you know, Colin John Barrington, Tierney. Yeah. Stellar people. Like yeah. he built great teams. They all went on to do great things. And they did. And, they, they? and Michael then ultimately, and Michael O'Leary built the yeah. biggest airline in the world. That's right. But, but at Tony Ryan's behest and encouragement, and isn't that correct? To be fair, and Tony, you know, Tony put 25 million in and it lost money for six years. Then Michael took it over and turned it into a phenomenal business. Yeah. But Tony deserves the credit for putting all the risk money yeah. up. And like he, that put him to the pin of his collar, you know, yeah. to put all that money into that business. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I remember too, Tony used to travel on Ryanair and queue up with the people. I remember. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Now, I'd say maybe that was, wasn't that often because he had a plane, but he might have done that for other, for just yeah. let Michael well, know that he, he was, was watching. Well, I, I met him once <laughs> and he was getting on the plane and I was unbelievably impressed. Did he do it to impress me? Just so, I, no, no, he wouldn't have done it for that reason, but no, I would say just to, to say to Michael, I'm going to sample the product even though yeah. I might be pri yeah. pri flying privately. You were two years with him? Two years. I bet that was two of the best years of your life when you look back on it now. L learnt a huge, yeah. a huge amount. And more, you know, about looking outside Ireland mm. and saying, look, forget about Ireland. Ireland's a good opportunity, but the real game is to build a business outside of Ireland. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like putting your out-of-office on for your holidays. Start time now, end time two whole glorious weeks from now. Happy days. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Dennis, we could go into your business and all of that, but to be honest with you, we, we've read so much yeah, about it and all that. You know, in a way, that's the truth. Um, somebody, somebody Ted said to me that one of the times that they see you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not all sunshine and light when no. working for you. I, I mean, no. I, I, I don't know that, and, and, yeah. but I, I don't believe you would be, and I'm sure you're, you're pretty tough betimes sure. and all of that. But your philanthropy is a very important part of your life. And I remember one of the guys that works or worked for you, I can't remember, saying that the happiest he has ever seen you is when you've been opening a school that your foundation has paid for and created in, in one of these deprived yeah. areas yeah. or countries. Well, uh, it's very simple. You know, if you're in a poor country like Haiti and you make huge profits, okay, from obviously the population selling the mobile phone services. I do never want to be seen as like most multinationals where they just take all the money back and bring it back to London or New York or Geneva. So, and I, so from the very get-go, we, like, we worked with Concern in Haiti even before we started the business in a plastic recycling project. And then as the business grew, we started to build schools. So we built 190, 90, 179 schools, new schools, uh, from scratch. They have about 60,000 children. And we put a lot of emphasis on teacher training because 
teachers in, in Haiti are not that skilled and haven't really been educated that much themselves. So, you know, we're trying to be impactful mm. uh, and be seen to be a good corporate citizen. Okay, is there is there cynicism in it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm only I'm sure taking the wrong side. I'm sure and, there is, yeah. I mean, is, is it that, would people say, oh, God, look, at all he's doing is by, uh, currying favour with the locals so that they'll take his telephones? We, see, I, we I don't do really believe, promote I know that. We don't tell the no. people of Haiti what they were doing. Now, people in Haiti will see a local school and they say, Digicel built that school and my kid goes to it. And that probably makes them feel good yeah. about our brand. How many schools have you opened worldwide? Uh, we did 480 in Papua New Guinea. Schools? Schools. Now, they would be huge double classrooms like the old Terrapin buildings used to have in schools in Ireland before they... Yeah. constructed schools, but you could have maybe six classes in a classroom, but it's a big, big classroom. Yeah. So we built 480 or so of them in, in Papua New Guinea all do, over do the you country. Like to, do, you, do you like to do that? Do you oh, personally? I love, I love going to school. PJ Mara was a director of Digicel and we opened a school in his honour. And, you know, it, it, when we all went down, and it was in the middle of nowhere in Haiti, and... You know, she, we all came back and said, wow, that was a great day. You yeah. know what I mean? And also, you're working with community leaders. So they, first of all, pitch to us, please build a school in our community. And then we make sure that they're, they have the capacity then to manage the school because we step out of it yeah. immediately. And uh, although we, we, t we help them with teacher training and that, sometimes we help them with budget as well, annual budget. But, you know, I think education in Haiti is where, you know, education was in Ireland in the 40s. You know mm. what I mean? You're, you know, the, the nuns and priests of Ireland educated most people and so did the Protestant mm. uh, community as well. And in these countries, you know, there are missionaries, but obviously the missionary movement is is dying out, unfortunately. They must be fantastic contacts for you, though, when you go to some of these countries where there are Irish missionaries. Hello, Dennis, how are you? Yeah. And, yeah. and I bet they're very useful to you. They're fantastic. I mean, you know, we, we have friends. I have a friend of mine that I'll have dinner next uh, Tuesday with in Papua New Guinea. He's 80. Father John Glynn, and he's a missionary in, in Papua New Guinea since 1965. Wow. And he is a fantastic man. Has he been home? Uh, he came home for a couple of rebores on the heart. Yeah. And uh, opened the beacon, and then he went back, you know, after a couple of months. Was he glad to get back? He wanted to get back. He just, he? you know, yeah. he couldn't assimilate back yeah. into Ireland. Yeah. And even though he's from County Clare, he went down to Clare and everything. But, you know, he wanted to get back yeah. to his community. He's working with, you know, uh, street children, you know, um, women that have been badly beaten up and yeah. that, and like tragic cases, yeah. people with AIDS. Um, with, uh, after the Haiti earthquake, I know you, you came to the rescue to a very... Uh, somebody told me you spent in the region of 700 million. I don't know whether that's even close or it's right. Oh, I don't know that, would, that would be very toppy. But okay. Well, in the aftermath of the earthquake, I went down every week to Haiti for about six months. And eventually it was all consuming. I had to stop it, okay? Because, you know, one person can help in this situation, but I could... In, know, in what way were you helping? Like, well, I, I, we were down, you know, we were involved somewhat. We were involved with President Clinton. We were involved with all the different NGOs down there trying to, you know, get housing up, you know, mm. tented town, villages up. 
you know, rebuild. This must have those. been like a new career for it you. I mean, to, outside of everything you yeah. had been doing, apart from painting restaurants black. Yeah, I'm building though, I must say. You, you enjoyed it, yeah. Yeah, so we went into overdrive. We then built, rebuilt the market, which is the iron market, a very famous market in Port-au-Prince, as the first building that would be reconstructed um, after the earthquake. And we did that a year to the day. We built a hotel a 200-room Marriott hotel because to get foreign direct investment, they want to go to a branded American hotel. Yeah. So we, we rebuilt our headquarters um, and we, we we just, you know, became very active yeah. in helping out where we could. You, you, you're you involved in the Special Olympics um, worldwide yeah. and all that. That's a huge one for you. And you've been involved in many other projects here in Ireland and abroad. Where does the social conscience run come from? I, uh, sorry, yeah. I know the answer to the yeah. question before. Yeah. It's your mother, isn't it? My mother and my father. My You know, my mother always used to gave... You know, she also, you know, they'd be collecting money during Lent. She used to collect money for this uh, this woman two doors up from us who was, uh, who was um, a missionary, a lay missionary in India, worked for people who were blind. We used to have, you know, the, uh, the you know, a Protestant nun come in. She was a missionary. You know, we, we, you know, a lot of people coming into the house maybe for dinner and telling stories, you know what I mean? Amazing stories about their work in India or Africa, wherever they were from. And, you know, I just got very... Then my mother was a Guardian reader, and as you know, Guardian readers have a particular view of the world, okay, uh, which I admire, uh, but, and, you know, very strong on human rights, very strong on, you know, enhancing the developing world yeah. uh, and the treatment of the developing world by wealthier nations. Yeah. So, you know, my mother is very fiery and still gives very strong views. Um, she doesn't read any Irish media, and I, I, I haven't quite figured that out, and she would be strongly anti-Sinn Féin. Really? And yeah, unforgiving of what happened. Well, she was a unionist, obviously, but she's unforgiving, you know, both of Paisley and of Gerry Adams to this day. Really? In the way, you know, they were involved in paramilitaries. mm Probably Paisley indirectly. Yeah. Um, she has been fantastic in terms of... She has her own foundation, yep. the Iris O'Brien Foundation, and she herself, apart from you, all to completely separate to you. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure the financial aid yeah, is yeah. coming from you, but she makes her own decisions in terms of helping worldwide, doesn't she, in yeah. causes She's in which she believes. Yeah. She's very interested in what's happening in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, she obviously is particularly anti-Trump. Yeah. Um, and I would share similar views to her because I think it's very bad. I, I think America is losing an awful lot of friends around the world that have been built for, you know, over decades through yeah. diplomacy. Um, clumsy, uh, clumsy, it's unthinking. It's kind of clumsy, yeah. you know, but it's very populist. And we live in a very populist era oh. right now. And populism, you know, is de rigueur. Nationalism is nationalism. Right wing. It's I mean... Peter Sutherland, who is a dear friend, you know, used to speak repeatedly about the rise of nationalism and its faults. And, you know, and probably, you know, um, you know I'd love to hear his views today. Yeah. You know, sadly, he is gone. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he was a fantastic Irishman. He was. Did you have many mentors? I mean, your father was your first mentor. And Tony Ryan, obviously, would yeah. have been a mentor to some extent. You mentioned yeah. Peter Sutherland there. 
did, did you have and do you believe you benefited greatly from the working with, meeting, listening to these people? I think, yeah, I mean, look, I, I always like to meet people older than me that mm. have different experiences to me. Mm. So, you know, Peter was a fantastic guy. If you take uh, Padraigo Higgy. Padraigo Higgy was a wonderful yeah. man. He was a great friend of mine as well. Yeah, uh, a genius. Yeah. And a great Irishman. And then Brendan O'Kelly. Yeah. You know, there's another guy called John Callahan who's been immensely helpful to me. He's managing partner of KPMG and now chairs my father's former business. Um, so, and I've Leslie Buckley, who's a dear, you know, my uh, close associate of mine in all my business. So, and Leslie has his own foundation. Yeah, he has his own haven, which is yeah. done brilliantly. Yeah. So I always thought, you know, what? sometimes younger people today don't appreciate grey hairs yeah. and a wider knowledge of international experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is to their great detriment yeah. because I've learned more listening to people who have different experiences to me than actually incurring the experiences myself. Yeah. Dennis says, I'm really enjoying this conversation. It's going on a little <laughs> too long, but I'm really enjoying it. Let me ask you this, hobbies. What, do, what are your hobbies? I know you like sport, but do you have time for hobbies? I do, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love sport. I've watched a lot of sport. I'm mad for soccer, I'm mad for rugby, a good belt of GAA. I like golf. And um, I just I watch any sport you know and then I have a white bag of everything that I read do you, what yeah. do you read? I read all sorts of books you know I mean I just I read all sorts of prayer, uh, magazines articles read stuff off the internet anything that can help me reinvent myself and so there, there are books that have a purpose have a purpose uh, yeah do you read fiction? Uh, no I don't I actually don't the, yeah. I read I read, the recent book I read was obviously, was Cotchland, about the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers, brothers, yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, I know these guys are something in America. Are they the second biggest privately owned company, Company, if not the biggest, yeah. In America. What's the first, by the way? Actually, it could be the Walmart business. Oh, it could be the Walmart Walmart business, yeah. Um, But uh, the Cokes are a sinister. Mind you, David is dead. David died last year. There's one David left. Charles is left, isn't he? he's the one. And he is the boy. I mean, these guys are, I won't say criminal, but they're uh, heading in that direction. Well, any piece of legislation in America, particularly environmental legislation, they've stopped it. They're they're totally against the Environmental Protection Agency. Correct. They want it done away with. They're against Medicare. They're against social. Security. Yeah. They're against any form of government re- regulation. They believe solely in yeah. market forces. Isn't that that's right? right. The that's, market should decide. That's the, the weakness of the American system. If you ask me, the American government system is better than ours because they put experts into the role of, say, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Defence, Secretary of Commerce, where in Ireland we're taking TDs that have no training whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my mind, if you want to become a minister in Ireland, you should go through the go to the Kennedy School of, of, of government, you know, on a crash course. Or there should be modules to train our TDs how to become and lead, you know, very important yeah. ministries, whether it's housing, health or anything oh. else. And, and that the American system hire experts. We just take whatever talent there is there yeah. And geographically, you know, those yeah. appointments are really important as well. And I think we're being found out. I think the last five years has found us out as a country. Where is Ireland going? You, uh, if you, if you, if you were to pick 
one area in which we as a nation need to step up a few notches. Where you've mentioned that about the ministers and government yeah. people should be better educated, yeah. know more about what they're doing. But what, what uh, Ireland as a nation, what, what should we be doing? What precautions should yeah. we be taking? What steps? I think we should be doubling down on artificial intelligence, you know, uh, genetics, you know, all the new. Um, all the new developments that are going to create industries and that we're going to participate in. So, you know, the idea have been magnificent in reading the trends, you know, in terms of global industrial development. You know, it read the pharma, it read the tech, Microsoft, yeah. uh, Intel, it read the social media, you know, in terms of Facebook, Google and uh, and LinkedIn and brought all these countries mm. to Ireland, our companies to Ireland. But now we need to see where the next wave of investment is going to come. The second thing is I think we need to change our taxation policies and move away from becoming being a laundrette and get out ahead of the OECD recommendations that are coming, whereby companies that make their profit in a country pay their taxes in that country. Mm. So, you know, we operate in 31 countries with Digicel. We make a point of paying taxes locally. Yeah. Because if you're operating in poor countries, they cannot run the government without your taxes. So we're probably the largest taxpayer in most of the countries that we operate in. If you take Haiti, the government for, has 10 million people to look after and they have a budget of $2.8 billion a year. They spend $220 million on health, $250 million on education. So, you know, unless you're playing the game as a multinational and paying taxes locally, you will not see development in these countries. Yeah. And, you know, that's the big shining of a light on yeah. Africa, for example. Yeah. And I think what Bono did, you know, 16 years ago in the debt forgiveness campaign that ultimately led into the One Foundation and what he did with Geldof was a seismic thing. Africa is booming now, but the next thing is for those countries to actually have the taxation revenue to develop their economies and their social programs. And also to cut out corruption, to cut out corruption, corruption well. at the top. Yeah, you know, that's but you can one. do that more easily, you know, if yeah. you're if you're collecting enough money to run your. That's country. right, and if it's yeah. if you're seeing what's happening, yeah. Dennis, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank with you. you. It's Mike. been a great pleasure to Good have to you. See you. So look, continued success to you, Dennis, and uh, I wish you every every possible good wish for the future. Thank Dennis O'Brien, thank you. Thank you. As part of our add-ons in terms of the uh, podcast, we, we like to talk to people about kind of giving advice on health or well-being or whatever it is you want to call it. And we've had a few uh, guests in from the Sports Surgery Clinic. And uh, Andy Franklin Miller is one of them. He's a consultant physician in sport and exercise medication in the clinic. And uh, I would like to concentrate today because of, it's a very personal thing myself on back pain. And I know it's very common because, you know, you, you mentioned it to somebody and they say, oh, I'm the same or my mother or my father or my sister. Um, back pain is really, really common, isn't it? Um, first of all, sports surgery clinic. Can I, uh, not, not being not now an athlete, can I go to the sports surgery clinic without a referral from a doctor and say, I have back pain, it's really worrying me. How bad is it and what do I do to 
try and repair it. Absolutely. And so, you know, the sports surgery clinic, you can come without being a sportsman or a woman, and you can come without needing surgery. So, and so, without needing a referral from a doctor. Absolutely. You can come and see a sport and exercise medicine physician without a referral. It's the, right. If, the, there are certain scenarios where you need a referral, but yeah. in most of the cases, you can ring up and, and book an appointment. Okay. Um, in terms of back pain, you're right. You know, 60% of the population will experience back pain in their lives. It's one of the most common conditions. And, and it's confusing because there's lots of terminology and causes and suggested treatments uh, ranging from surgery at one end um, to painkillers at the other. And actually, for the person that's affected by it, it's often underestimated how impactful it is, how troublesome and how painful it actually is in stopping you moving. And very debilitating. I mean, in all honesty, I find myself, when it gets bad, you become so tired, fatigued, worn out. It has an effect on you, uh, even on your personality, I think. For sure. It's certainly affecting your mental health as well as your physical health. And that's why it's so important to try to look for ways to to improve or to reduce the flares. I don't think we'll ever be perfect in that. We know that the spine um, has some degeneration over time in everybody. Not everyone gets back pain. So the degeneration that we see in the back doesn't always mean that you'll have symptoms. Um, but certainly the more active you are, the more you do to look after yourself, the better that can be. Um, but that doesn't help you when you actually have the back pain. Yeah. Because obviously that's the, the most important thing. If, if, I, if supposing I went to you uh, without a doctor's referral, um, and I'm saying, look, I've got back pain. I don't know how bad it is. I don't know what exactly is causing it, but I'd love you to tell me what it is and give me a recommendation as to what kind of exercise I could do to help alleviate it or repair it. Absolutely. So the most important thing here, I think, is to make sure that we have a diagnosis. Yeah. Because very often, actually, it's sort of, you know, I've got back pain. You what see, is it's it? very hard to know yourself. I mean, I, is, has I, have I slipped a disc? Is it arthritis in my spine? Is it degenerative disc disease? What the heck is it? You don't know. Absolutely. And so, Joe, one of the common pitfalls, I guess, is to rely on just the MRI scan and look at the report and you see a list of things that you mentioned there. You know, disc prolapses, degenerative spine, mm. facet joint arthritis. Um, and, and we know that actually in 60% of 60-year-olds, you've got all of them. They're all things that are part and parcel necessarily of aging, and therefore they're not necessarily the thing responsible. Like we published a study in 2015 where we looked at a bunch of patients who presented with exactly that. So a bunch of back pain um, patients who, who have quite debilitated by their symptoms, and some of them had disc protrusions, and some had had injections before. One of the interesting things we found was the amount of fat infiltration in the muscles of the back. So if we think about a fillet steak, for example, dark, dense muscle with very little fat in it, and we compare that to chuck steak, where there might be a lot of fat marbling within the muscle, patients with back pain seem to have an association with a lot of poor quality muscle. Now, that fat isn't anything to do with diet. It's not what you eat and it's not how you've lived your life. It doesn't really matter whether your body fat is there related, but it's the muscle. So if we don't use muscle, it turns fatty. So these are the muscles in the lower back, are they? Absolutely. Or they're not the shoulder, they're down at the lower no, back. And the you're same muscles about. run from the neck down to the okay. back of the bottom, but the, we're focusing there in the lower back where a lot of people get pain. Yes. And there seem to be this association between less muscle, less quality muscle, and pain. So we designed an intervention where patients would train um, at, in a gym or at home or at the clinic um, three times a week. For about 30 minutes lifting weights. 
If could, they can do this at home, of course, too, can't they, if they get a set of weights? Absolutely right. And yeah. so, you know, buying a heavy kettlebell and gradually progressing yeah. through that weight, absolutely very common way of doing this. so careful with that, haven't you, though? I mean, and it, that's the thing. You know, the importance here is that these patients had been seen by a consultant yeah. physician. They'd been assessed. The risks had been done. But the care was delivered by strength and conditioning. Yeah, so, so in other words, they're trained. given a weight that will suit them and will not cause them damage. Absolutely. And the thing here is that exercises often... Um, over-prescribed and underdosed. Too often we see patients told to go away and do these exercises morning, noon, and night, very low weight or body weight. And really what they're doing is exercising the muscle rather than training it. So we take the same principles that an elite athlete would use and apply them to everybody. Not at the same loading levels, but the idea is that we need to lift heavier from week to week, but in a very controlled way. So that actually we use the muscles that get you in and out of a chair. We pick up a box off the floor um, and the things that sort of try to limit the fear associated with back pain. We published this study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine and, um, and demonstrated that actually we can reverse that fat infiltration no matter what the age um, by can. about 35% in three months. And so it's, it's exciting in terms of an intervention which you're doing yourself. You're not relying on a therapist. You're not spending money for regular treatments here. Um, it's something yeah. that gets you active. And, you know, it's part and parcel of that exercise prescription generally mm. in terms of lifestyle and improving your cardiovascular health. So there are win-wins here, both in terms of mental health, in terms of managing the back pain, but also the cardiovascular health and diabetes prevention that we know exercise yeah. gives us. Have you an example? I mean, have, have, have people come to you that you've seen them coming into you in the clinic maybe in a very, very, you know, physically very, very restricted and that as a result of what has been done, they're doing well for themselves. Absolutely. Look, I, I, and, and she, she'd chuckle at me for, for explaining this, but I, one of my favourite patients um, through this programme was a lady in her late 70s who came in with her son struggling to get out of a chair um, and came into the consultation room, and I listened to the story. Age what? Uh, late 70s. Okay. Um, and, and hadn't really ever had a, an active lifestyle, um, but enjoyed gardening. Um, and, and walking, but couldn't do that and was struggling to do the daily tasks of, of living because of back pain and, and was reliant on medication, but things were getting worse. And she came in to see me. We'd looked at her scans. There was clearly lots going on on the scan, but it was much less relevant. But for that, she didn't have the strength to really get out of the chair. And so my, my explanation was very much based, as we've just discussed, that we needed to make the muscles of the back stronger the only way I could do that was to arrange an exercise program. And I have to say, she chuckled at me and looked very skeptically when I showed her a bar on the floor and said, I'm going to get you to pick this bar up off the floor. And her son was skeptical, and understandably. Um, but she started the program, said she would humor me for a couple of weeks and started off on that program. And actually, then she disappeared. And I didn't see her again for a while. But the next time I saw her, she'd been training in a gym in the west of Dublin um, by herself with a bunch of younger girls um, and indeed taken up powerlifting. Um, oh, and, come on. and now travels You're kidding me. You're kidding me. No, powerlifting. It's a phenomenal story. Now age-related, yeah. you know, age classification, <laughs> but phenomenal success story. And actually, you wouldn't recognize her. Um, and so I think it's an important lesson that, you know, the perception here is that um, patients with back pain shouldn't lift weights, which is really wrong advice. You know, it's safe, yes, it has to be, but we need to get that patient yeah. group stronger. Um, and they need good advice. Yeah, and it's yeah. not a case of just Look, going to the gym. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. And I mean, that's really where we're going to leave it. But the fact is, I, I would be very loath to say, oh, my goodness, I think I'd be able to lift a certain weight. The, what we were talking about, going to get a medical assessment 
before doing it, in my view, would be very, very important. People can go to your clinic, isn't that right, and get that assessment. Listen, can, are they covered, by the way, with the health insurance to go and see, see you? Actually, that? well, look, it depends on the insurer. An insurer, of course, some policies cover part repayment for consultant fees, yeah. um, and some insurers cover strength and conditioning and physiotherapy in part. So certainly it's not always an out-of-pocket cost. How much would it cost me if I went to you guys now? So an initial consultation is around the order of 200 euros. Okay, but you might get some of that back from your health insurance. Absolutely right. Okay, and then you go on to get the tests? Yes. The tests and, over and, and above. And the important thing there is that actually it's detailed, it's, it's created for you. Yeah. So in terms of getting that idea, it's around the, the 100 the, euro point. Around the what? Around the 100 euro okay. point. Okay, then the, the, I mean the idea then is you have it done once, you're given a series of exercises that are going to benefit you, you hope, and they're, but they're medically approved before you do the exercises, and hopefully your back pain will be alleviated. Andy Franklin Miller of the Sports Surgery Clinic, thank you very much. Pleasure. That's all from us for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again. The Senior Times podcast is produced by Conor O'Hagan and brought to you by Senior Times magazine in association with Zurich Expressway, Doro, and the Sports Surgery Clinic. This is Mike Murphy saying goodbye for now. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Being future ready, it's a powerful feeling. Like pedalling to the top of the hill and knowing that now it's just freewheeling all the way to your front door. Whee! Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich. Or visit Zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.